0: Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Steve Edwards.
1: Hello from a very rainy Portland.
0: Dan Shapir.
2: Hi, from a warm and sunny Tel Aviv, where it's in the high 70s all the time.
1: Oh, I'm so jealous.
0: AJ O'Neill.
3: Yo, 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 coming at you live from SAD.
0: That's seasonal (laughs) affective disorder, by the way. Oh, yeah, it's cold here. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And uh, yeah, Dan, you scheduled this. I guess you got tired of us complaining about React.
2: Yeah, exactly. We kept, you know, I kept hearing you guys talking about how React is kind of uh, weird and strange and not understandable and really complicated and how you guys miss uh, the browser DOM. And and I uh, thought that maybe it has to do with a certain lack of understanding of, of some of React's core principles. And in particular, how it the core philosophy of React, you might say, and how it's enabled by virtual DOM, which is obviously different from the real DOM because it's virtual.
0: So mm-hmm. yeah, that's what I want to talk about today. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to top-end devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv, and I renamed it to top-end devs because I want to give you the resources that are gonna help you to build the career that you want. right? So whether you wanna be an influencer in tech, Once again, that's TopEndDevs.com. I just think that the front-end frameworks are mostly overkill. But I
2: Oh, yeah. You know. for, for a lot of uh, use cases, they definitely are. I mean, if you're building a mostly static website, then all you really need is just HTML and CSS and have yeah. at it. But if you're building something that's more applicative, an actual web app, let's say, something that needs to be a single-page application which is a whole discussion in and of itself, I guess. Yes, it is. Then something like a, then a framework is, is really often the way to go because it just does a whole lot of the heavy lifting for you.
0: I do agree yeah. that
3: if you don't use one, you'll build one yourself. And I do agree that most people <laughs> don't document their code, so you'll be left with something that's worse than any alternative.
0: That's, oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. My take on it is mostly that if you're building like an interactive experience, then... Yeah, the the frameworks make a lot of sense. If you're if you're building an interface that's relatively simple that yeah, is mostly static. You a know. contact
3: form, a static web page with marketing right. material and a contact form.
1: Right. For sure. But I need all the right. contact form to be dynamic and and all that. So I really need a JavaScript framework for that.
3: And so you have to convert the entire page that otherwise would render without JavaScript at all, because there's literally nothing JavaScript does into a React app that then takes for, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah. anyway, but I'm, I'm, I am curious because, you know, I mean, I, I've talked to plenty of people about React. I've built some React native apps. There are definitely some things that I like about React. It's just that, yeah, when I'm reaching for, hey, I've got to build this out. Typically, I'm not building the kind of experience where I really need the kind of interactivity that React, Angular, and Vue tend to. I think would push me to use one of those. So, but but Dan, let's let's dive into this because I, I really do want to talk about. Okay, you know what is the React philosophy? I mean, what are we talking about here with how React works, how React thinks about the the web and things like that? Because a lot of people are using it. A lot of people like it. And though I disagree that they need to use it in every instance that they use it, there are reasons that people are using it. And so I think I think that's the value of diving into this. And I think there might be some pushback as far as, hey, that makes sense, but then it doesn't add up to using it here. But I think in other cases, it's going to also be, I hadn't thought of that before. So maybe I would reach for it in this instance where I wouldn't have before. And so I'm kind of curious just to to have the conversation and see where we wind up, right? Because I'm betting that, yeah, you're going to dive into some stuff that I wasn't aware of. I hope so.
2: Yeah, we talked about it before the show that uh, a lot of people are probably using React because that's simply what they've been told in, in a boot camp or uh, the online course that got them into web development. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's effectively all they know. It's not that they chose React; it's that like React was chosen for them, and they don't even necessarily uh, know or understand how the browser DOM works and the event loop and stuff like that. And that's that's a really a shame because, as you said, in a lot of cases, the the built-in functionality in the browser is just good enough. In fact, it's it's often better. Then good enough, it's exactly what you need. But there was a reason that React was built the way that it was. And the particular aspect of React that I wanted to dive into is the virtual DOM or the VDOM. And understanding the VDOM is fundamental to understanding the why and how of React. And in fact, the VDOM has been so successful that it has transcended React and has been adopted by other JavaScript frameworks. Mm -hmm. So, for example, Vue uses virtual DOM, Mithril uses VDOM, and Preact, which is kind of an alternative. React implementation obviously uses the VDOM. And then on the other hand, you have other JavaScript frameworks that intentionally avoid using the VDOM. For example, Rich Harris, the creator of Svelte, has uh, called VDOM on record pure overhead and effectively builds VELT in a way that it totally avoids using it. So there, it cuts both ways. So yeah, I was, definitely
3: think it's worth a conversation. So with the with the virtual DOM, my understanding is, might be totally off base, but basically virtual DOM is a legacy of back from the jQuery days when the DOM wasn't efficient, and we didn't have methods like insert adjacent HTML that were extremely performant, and we didn't have request animation frame, and we didn't have, all of the performance tools baked into the DOM that now exist?
2: Well, I, that's not exactly the case, in my opinion, at least. From my perspective, there are a couple of problems with direct DOM manipulation, and performance, past or present, is only one of them. Uh, so other issues with direct DOM manipulation, historically, it has been browser compatibility, Uh, That one can be said to be effectively solved, especially now that everybody is dropping IE support. For example, I just learned that uh, Lego announced that they're no longer supporting IE. Wix, by the way, treats Lego uh, as in? Yeah, the toy that you buy, Lego, they have a website, apparently a really cool
3: one, and they used to support IE IE, and now they don't anymore. So hooray for them. I'm glad that they realized that uh, people that work at banks and government facilities aren't their target customer.
1: <laughs> <laughs> See, when you said that, Dan, I thought for a minute they weren't shipping it as part of their Lego toys—the little computers <laughs> that they ship.
2: So. Yeah, and by the way, Wix also we also treat uh, Legos a uh, legacy browser. So if it kind of happens to work, then great. But we actually put in a, a notification that we don't officially support
0: it anymore.
3: Wait, Lego? Has uh, a I, I think you just.
0: Yeah, you just misspoke and said we don't support Lego oh. as a legacy browser, <laughs> which is hilarious, but we yeah. all know what you meant. Yeah, yeah, I
2: meant IE. So Fair enough. yeah. So one but historically, one reason for frameworks has been browser compatibility. And and like right. I said, that, that's that's what that one is gone.
0: So what? well that was thing? initially the issue that jQuery was built to solve oh, prototype yeah. before sure. that, right? It was well we we don't know if we call this, if it even exists, right? Because Microsoft made their own APIs and then we're just going to wang it out there and hope <laughs> you know, that it works. And so jQuery yeah. made it consistent, which was so helpful. And
2: now and now the browser makers really do adhere work hard yep. at, at, in order to adhere to the standards and make sure that the standards are such that they can all adhere to them. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if not browser compatibility, what then? What are other problems with the browser, with the browser DOM itself? So I think the key issue from my perspective with the browser DOM is that it's effectively mutable global state. You essentially, any part of the code can access any part of the DOM at any time and you manipulate it using side effects. So uh, you you invoke a JavaScript function, that JavaScript function, I don't know, does a, a query selector, whatever, finds the DOM node that it's looking for and then manipulates it, and then doesn't actually return anything from that function. It's all side effects, it's all globals. Any part of the code can access almost any uh, part of the DOM. These days, we have the shadow DOM and stuff like that, but effectively, you can access any part of the DOM from anywhere, and if you can't do something, developers tend to do that thing. So you end up with code that really any part of the app might be doing anything with any part of the DOM at any time. There's no clear separation of concerns, and this becomes especially problematic if you start working with a synchronous code. So uh, you start modifying some part of the DOM, then you uh, wait for some JSON to arrive uh, via AJAX, Mm -hmm. and in the meantime, some other part of the application, uh, manipulates that same part of the DOM and you end up in something that's totally inconsistent. So so that's the key problem with the browser DOM. Now, obviously, if you're not doing very significant manipulations or alternatively, if you're writing really clean code, then you can work around this imitation. But if you're writing complex applications, you do want to avoid this type of an approach. You You want to have componentized You want to have uh, uh, code, you want to have encapsulation, you want to have separation of concerns and
0: generally avoid side effects. Gotcha. Um, So everyone but Steve will have this problem. (laughs) Steve's code is perfect, but the rest of us? Yeah, exactly.
2: Also, the DOM tends to be complex. It's highly imperative. If uh, you end up with really verbose uh, code to do some things that seem to be really simple. You create a DOM element and then you need to set the properties one by one and then
3: append it. False information. Fake news. Fake news. (laughs) (laughs) You do not need to do that. That is how it's commonly done. But you do not need to do that because you can just construct a string and use insert adjacent L, uh, what is it, insert adjacent HTML, insert adjacent element HTML, I forget what it is.
2: Yeah, and, I, I'll
3: get to that in a bit.
2: But oh. yeah, that's, you know, kind of quote-unquote cheating in that effectively you're treating an HTML string as a as a piece of code. It's it's a legitimate thing to do, but it also has its own ri- risks and downsides.
3: Wait, have you ever heard of React? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I just, just well, want to point out the hypocrisy while we're here. <laughs> okay. We'll get there. And another
2: issue that I wanted to mention about direct DOM manipulation is that it's it's really problematic to test, or at least it can be, because you usually end up doing a whole lot of mocking in order to simulate the, the DOM so that you can modify that simulated DOM in order to, to test your code. And mocking is just not a lot of fun.
3: Do you find, because I just assume that the only way to test front-end code in any any way that brings real value is to use something like Cypress. I had I had never considered that it would be desirable to try to test. Well, I mean, I, I don't really use React, but I'd never considered it to be desirable to try to test DOM manipulations without testing how the browser actually behaves because, well, because it's so likely to do something you didn't expect.
2: Well, again, if you do, if you properly break down your code into components and certain components are really small and you can actually implement it, is something like pure functions that receive a state value and emit HTML in a way that you can check that HTML that the function provides as a return value, then why isn't that testable?
3: Because as soon as you put know that on the page, there's some other component that overlaps with it by a padding of thirty pixels, and you can't click the X button or get rid of the ad or even subscribe. Okay, to that's the you know logo. that's. The...
2: Yeah, that's the f- I'm not, again, I'm not saying to avoid
3: end-to-end tests.
2: I'm just saying that those are extreme cases and you should definitely test for them. But I- each and every component, there is a lot of value to unit tests. Let's put it this way. Yeah. And if you can actually unit test the front end, that's a huge benefit. Anyway, it's really up to you, to you. But one of the problems with working with the browser DOM directly is that unit tests, if you do want to implement them, become really difficult. Now, I have to point out that it actually used to be very simple because in the past, if we wanted just the HTML to be kind of uh, not implemented as side effects of JavaScript functions, well, what we would do is just do it all server-side. And then you just uh, make a function call, quote unquote, which is an HTTP GET or an HTTP POST if you have parameters that you need to provide, and you get the HTML back as a return value because it's the the response. And that's it. I still like that way of doing things, to be honest. Well, that way is great. It's great when it works. But there are obviously some problems with it. I mean, if your network isn't great... Or sometimes, mm-hmm. even if it's pretty good, it still can be relatively slow because of the, the network round trip. For some interactions, it's not a problem. But for other interactions, having that network round trip, let's say if you, you want to create some sort of interactive form that does things whenever you click or type something, for example, something like the, the Google Smart Search box, you, you won't do that by reloading the page on every button press it just doesn't make sense. And another big issue with this approach is that you lose local state whenever you reload the entire page. So even if you load the page that looks exactly like the page that you left, all the forms would be cleared. You lose whatever state you had locally within the page when the new page loads. So there are there are there are reasons why in some cases uh, an SPA is better than mm-hmm. an, uh, an MPA at least in at least in portions of of the web application. Did you
0: just say MPA, multi-page application? I know. I just thought it was funny. I've never heard it before. Oh, yeah.
3: Well,
2: I I've never know.
0: heard the term before. Yeah. Interesting. Live and learn. So, this is
2: what React creators were looking to to achieve or to solve, uh, how to get the benefits of an of an SPA on the one hand, and couple it with the simplicity of an MPA on the other hand. And here I use Mm -hmm. it again. That means create this sort of a mechanism where you get back the DOM that you need as a function return value, kind of. Now, it turns out that if we do want to achieve that on the client side, there are actually several ways in which we can do it. So one way, is that we can, in fact, like AJ kind of suggested before, essentially just have that function return an HTML, a string. Just return a string containing HTML and then use any, something maybe is even as simple as inner HTML or like the, the new append-adjacent HTML. Mm-hmm. I forget the exact uh, DOM API, but you can definitely use that and it definitely works. So like I said, you just create this JavaScript function which gets this, whatever state uh, you need to provide to it as, as parameters, return HTML as, as a string, Let's say you invoke that following some user interaction, and then you assign that HTML into some element in in the existing DOM. And it's really easy to implement because now we also have JavaScript template strings. So it's really easy to insert your values into some sort of a string literal that you prepare in advance. And another advantage is that you can actually even break it down into subfunctions, and each one of those can return a partial string and then you can just concatenate all those substrings into this one big string, and there you go. So you've got the benefits of, of the, the server side mechanism. In fact, it works in a way that's really similar to it. You avoided uh, the round trip. You also don't need to reload the entire page with all with all its resources and all the JavaScript because you just set that string into a part of the page. And it, you don't even need to modify the entire page. You just you can just modify those parts that need to be modified. So the state in the other parts is untouched. Mm-hmm. And the benefits are that it's pure functional, it's params in, string out, it's very declarative. Uh, it's easy to compose. Like I said, you just concatenate the strings and it's really easy to test as well because you just, you know, test the string that you get back. You don't need to apply it into an actual DOM or a mocked DOM in order to test it. But it also definitely has downsides. First of all, it's surprisingly fast because browsers are really, really good at parsing HTML strings, but it can be too, still be too slow, especially if you're trying to set really large portions of the page. Um, for, uh, for example, I probably wouldn't want to do that if I'm trying to maintain a 60 frame per second frame rate. I wouldn't set the entire page over and over again using html strings that those portions of the page that do contain a local state if you do an inner html for example into their parent you do lose their local state so even if you replace one text box with another text box the content of that text box is gone and obviously there are the limitations of using strings as code because you don't really have uh, syntax checking, for example. So I know that there are some uh, VS Code extensions these days that kind of address this, at least to an extent. But still, at the end of the day, when you put code inside the string, you lose a lot of the safety that goes with the validation of that code. So, for example, if you generate wrong HTML. The only thing that you'll notice really is that the page renders wrong. There won't be any, right. any syntax error or anything like that. So that, but that's, that's one possibility. Another possibility is to actually have a function that generates an entire DOM subtree, maybe uh, something with a document fragment or maybe just some root element or something. You just use JavaScript code with direct DOM API, you know, create element, set attributes, all all the stuff. And then you you return that DOM fragment as the return value. And, and you can use the something like the new replace with DOM API to replace the existing DOM node with the new DOM node. And again, you can even break it down into sub functions. You just append the results of the sub functions you know, inside the main function. So that's another approach that you can take, which doesn't require anything beyond what we already have built into the browser. But you know, despite what AJ said, this can end up being really verbose. I mean, if unless you're using the HTML shortcuts in which uh, string shortcuts, in which case you know we already spoke about that, then you end up with really verbose code. For example, you create an, an element, then you set the properties one by one, then you append to the parent, lots of instructions in order to create each and every element. Again, if you replace an element, you lose the state of the previous element. And the funny thing is that it can e- uh, even be slower than the original, than the previous method of using an HTML string. I know that people might be surprised by that, because they think, "Hey, you know, the the, the browser doesn't need to parse a, str- uh, a string. I just give it the exact DOM elements." But it turns out that performing a lot of DOM operations from JavaScript can actually be very expensive. So uh, we've talked about this in the past.
3: I I'm not sure about this, but I would assume that if you do the operation in a request animation frame, you would get some benefit because then the browser knows that you don't expect it to cut its other processes to try to repaint. Because the reason that doing the manipulations has traditionally been so bad, my understanding, is that because the browser, every time you manipulate a node, the browser will repaint. Whereas if you use the string, the browser doesn't repaint until it's completed the entire node all on its own. No, that's not correct. Uh, okay. the
2: browser. Uh, first of all, if you create a DOM node, which is currently not attached to the document, you, you just create it and then modify it so it's, it's, it's present, not yet attached to the document. Anything that you do with it doesn't cause any rendering whatsoever because the browser knows that it cannot impact the display. So it's actually, in most cases, beneficial if you do use direct DOM manipulation, and I have the dog barking here. (laughs) If you're using direct uh, DOM manipulation in this way, it's actually beneficial to do as much of the DOM manipulations before you attach the DOM node to the document. So that's uh, 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 one thing. The other thing is that if you don't interleave operations, that is, you don't read, write, you just write, 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 and then read, 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 or vice versa, then you can also, the, the browser can actually batch the updates. But we'll get, hopefully we'll get to that a bit later on. So we spoke about two possible solutions. So let me propose a third one. And the third one is actually the virtual DOM. And here it goes. Let's say that instead of, that I take the similar approach to the one that I just presented, but of creating DOM elements, but instead of creating actual DOM elements, I create JavaScript objects. And and the JavaScript objects kind of mimic or stand-ins for actual DOM objects. So what I'm saying is that instead of constructing actual DOM elements, we'll simply construct lightweight, simple JavaScript elements. You can think about them like JSON, effectively, where each of these elements represents a single DOM element, or each one of these objects actually represents a single DOM element. You might have uh, a string field on that object Mm -hmm. that specifies the tag name. You'd have an array of attributes or a map of attributes, you know, key value pairs. And then you would have uh, an array of children, which are also just more JavaScript objects. So effectively, it's just a JSON. And instead of returning a DOM element, will return the root object of this tree of JavaScript objects that we just constructed. And as we all know, if there's one thing that JavaScript is really good and fast at, it's creating and manipulating its own objects. So JavaScript can create objects really quickly, add properties on top of them really quickly. We can also provide the factory function, which makes this really easy, or we can create it as, as object literals, whichever way we prefer. Either way, it's it's all good. But you then might ask, well, it's really great that you created this uh, JSON, which represents the actual DOM, but <laughs> still needs to be converted into the actual DOM in order to actually do anything. And you know, for the first time, that's exactly what happens. So the first time that you render, it's up to what the library that you're using, in this case React. To take this tree of objects and actually just convert it into an actual DOM that exactly matches in terms of content the the uh, tree of objects that you handed over to it. But after the real DOM is created, what React does it actually holds on to that tree that you gave to it. It doesn't just discard it. And then the next time that you give it an, a new tree, it what it does is it then compares these two trees and checks and identifies exactly what the differences are between these two. And it kind of creates a list of all the differences. And then only those differences are applied into the actual DOM. And then, of course, you take that new virtual DOM that you created and use it as the base for the next time and and discard the previous one. And this process, by the way, is called reconciliation. It realigns the browser DOM with a new virtual DOM by making the the least expensive changes in the actual browser DOM so that it matches the new virtual DOM. Is that clear so far? Mm -hmm. So effectively, you've got this, theoretically, you would have this pure function. You give it a state. It builds this tree of JavaScript objects, hands them back, you take that that uh, the root object of that tree, you hand it over to React, and React uses that to update the DOM by just changing those parts of the of the browser DOM that don't match this new tree. Uh, the benefits of this approach is that it's really fast because, like I said, building a tree of JavaScript objects is really cheap. Uh, and also you make a really small usually, except for the first time, you would usually make a small number of changes in the actual browser DOM. It also preserves the DOM state because anything that hasn't been changed is just not touched in the browser DOM, and it's easy to use because building JSON is simple. So, you know, it's it's really easy to do. I do want to say a few words about this reconciliation, about how it works. Uh, so, uh, like I said, it it works by comparing two trees in order to discover uh, the differences between them, uh, or more precisely, the smallest number of operations required to get from the second tree to the uh, first tree, um, for general-purpose trees, uh, such a comparison would actually be pretty, uh, pretty expensive. I didn't research it itself uh, myself, but uh, the React documentation says that a generic tree comparison algorithm would be an uh, big O of n to the th- uh, to the power of three. So, it's, it's pretty expensive. So, in order to avoid such expensive corporations, what React does, and the same goes for uh, the other frameworks, is that uh, they use shortcuts. Uh, based on the fact that they're not comparing generic trees, they are comparing trees of HTML elements. So, they reduce the complexity because they can make certain assumptions about the trees that they are comparing. For example, if let's say they hit a certain uh, element in the new tree, uh, vdom tree and it's of, of uh, type uh, let's say span and in the previous tree it was of a type div then you know they know hey the, the the element type itself has been changed well then it doesn't try to do a comparison of the subtree from that point on it just assumes that okay everything here is changed I'm just going to replace the the old one with a new with a new one so it just has to recreate that entire dom browser dom section but it reduces the complexity of, of uh, the comparison uh, there're also special handling for certain attributes like style because it actually has to look at uh, the various parts of the style And not at the style uh, in its totality is just a string value. And there are other tricks in there that maybe if we have time we'll get to later, like uh, using keys and stuff like that to help the algorithm do do its matching of which uh, which object matches which. And that's the whole trick of the virtual DOM, really. The fact that thanks to this approach you can have a pure function that takes state returns the DOM that you want the browser to have but as a whole but not as an actual DOM but as javascript objects that which you can then hand over to react which does the minimal amount of amount of changes in order to get to that desired html state that's also one of the reasons why you should generally avoid modifying the dom behind react's back because it assumes that the the state of the DOM matches the previous virtual DOM that it has. If you then just went directly to the browser DOM and did all sorts of modifications, then obviously React wouldn't be aware of it and you would end up with potentially inconsistent states. But if you've ever read React code, you probably say, "But hey, Dan, uh, you're talking about uh, simple objects and it's JSON and whatnot. But if I look at how React uh, code is written, I don't see JSON objects. I see something that looks like HTML, which is obviously Mm -hmm. JSX. And that's kind of React's second let's call it idea or you know you can decide whether it's smart or not yourself which is to uh, they were basically saying that it would be very unnatural for people to um write the the create the vdom using something that kind of looked like javascript objects that people generally prefer to build html as something that looks like HTML. And I guess they were looking at the templates that were available in other frameworks like uh, Angular, for example. Mm -hmm. So their idea was to use something like that, but to effectively embed it within the JavaScript itself. And they do that, and they did that by implementing a transpiler, or you can call it a compiler, or maybe even just a preprocessor, whatever you prefer, which takes something which looks like HTML declarations, and then it, converts them into JavaScript objects. Well, more accurately, it actually converts them into function calls that generates JavaScript objects. But essentially, it's the same idea. So you kind of ended up with something that's kind of like HTML embedded in the JavaScript itself. Or you can call it HTML and JS or
0: something like that. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and Go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one-hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go, and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. And, and in many ways,
2: it seemed or seems or seemed like sort of a perfect solution. Uh, you can write pure JavaScript functions that accepts state as parameters, return the VDOM, hand the VDOM back to React, and it efficient, uh, efficiently reconciles it with the actual browser DOM and, and uh, job done. And when and whenever you need to update the, the browser state because the user did something that needs to impact the UI or some information arrived from the server, well, you just call that function again. So theoretically, if we went with a really simple solution, all you would need to have is your own function, which builds the virtual DOM, get that and take that virtual DOM and just you know pass it as a parameter to some React function and job done. But we all know that React is not that simple because there were several problems with this really simple approach. And this is where I like to say that this is when reality happened. You had this really, really cool and and simple solution, and then you started running into all sorts of limitations with it. So as I mentioned, the initial state is still expensive because there's nothing before the initial state. So that one still needs to be created from scratch. But let's put this one aside. We'll get to that later, hopefully, if we have time. And the other problem is that even with reconciliation, this process can be slow. And, we'll, oh, and I'll explain why. And the another issue is how to manage local state. Because the function that I described that takes state and returns the entire VDOM as a return value that you hand over to React, that state is a global state. But let's say I want to have some sort of a local state. Uh, let's say I have uh, a form and I have this checkbox that controls whether the you know you see the state or you don't see the state or something like that. I'm talking about not. Uh, I'm talking about states in the U.S. <laughs> in the case of the form, uh, okay. or yeah. So you kind of modify how the form looks like based on other the values of of other fields, and that doesn't seem like something that which should reside in a global state. That's something that seems like local information to a particular component. In the user mm-hmm. interface. So, so those are the problems. But uh, so let's so, like I said, the initial state is expensive. Let's talk about that a bit later. Let's talk about why I'm saying that even with reconciliation, the updates can still be too slow. So I, I you know I previously explained how the DDOM is really cheap and reconciliation is really efficient, and the React developers are really smart. So they use a the really sophisticated algorithm. And if their algorithm isn't efficient enough, you can use Preact, which is even more efficient. But what about your own application's logic? I mean, that function that takes the current state and generate and maps that into the VDOM, that's still potentially a lot of work. If your UI is complex and there are enough elements in the page, and eval- you need to run the logic for each and one of those elements. And in some cases, it's simply a question of quantity. If you have a lot of components in the page, then running the logic for all of these components can be really expensive. I've seen blogs, for example, implemented where almost every line in the blog was a React component. So if you've got a long document, that's just a ton of of, of React components that you need to of uh, elements in the VDOM that you need to generate one after the other. It's just a lot of work. Or potentially, maybe there are not so many objects in the VDOM, but some of them really depend on complicated logic that takes a while to evaluate. And running all of them, all that logic, your own code on each and every update can be expensive, again, especially if you're trying to hit something like 60 FPS. So there are certain tricks that you might use to to reduce this overhead for example one trick that react introduced relatively early on is let's say that your function or a function that's supposed to generate the vdom for a certain section of the page let's say that instead of just getting the current state it also receives the previous state and it can then compare these two states and if it sees that there are uh, they are equivalent they that they generate the same that they should generate the same VDOM, then it could simply cut off without generating the VDOM, without invoking all its children. It can just stop and maybe return some sort of a value, which indicates I've stayed the same, all good, nothing to do with me. It will also reduce the reconciliation time. So that sounds really great, but uh, it's kind of difficult to implement as a simple function. I mean, what would you return if you want to say, and everything is good with me as a function return value. I don't know. Maybe you'd think, hey, I just return null or undefined, but turns out that those are actually legitimate values to return that w- that mean I don't have a VDOM. So I actually they would actually need to return something else. Like so, like I said, implementing something like this as a pure function, which just returns a single value, is problematic. So maybe you return two values, but then you make the whole thing just more complicated so that's one problem with it another problem is that sometimes comparing the state can be in in itself complicated and expensive and then you might be doing more harm than good because for every one of these components you're doing both the comparison and then if the comparison turns out to be false the actual generation so now you're paying an even bigger price whenever you need to actually modify the virtual DOM and you still need to go through all the parents' elements in all the ancestors in the tree to get to that point where you do the cutoff. So bottom line is, it's a cool technique. It can be really useful in some cases, but in a lot of other cases, it's just not enough. We, we need other mechanisms where we can control uh, which portions of the virtual DOM we actually want to generate. But again, you see the problem here. The, originally, the concept was so simple because we said, hey, we were just going to recreate the entire virtual DOM of, on everything. And then the model was indeed really simple. And now I'm getting into the weeds because I'm, I'm coming up with ways in which I can generate just portions of the virtual DOM instead of the, the entirety of it. So, so yeah. Any, any thoughts or comments so far? I'm
3: sold on the basic idea of the virtual DOM, more or less. I I think a lot of times when people have complained about okay so it's AG Grid for example they do weird stuff that cannot be accomplished with direct DOM manipulation we had them on the show they talked about it that that makes sense it seems to me that I mean, and this is kind of a this is a this is definitely a tangent from the main the main conversation but just just the argument about the virtual DOM I get it but I also question if The need for the virtual DOM doesn't suggest that something else in your process has gone really wrong. So, for example, in Angular, if you wanted to fill a list dynamically with, say, as you type, you want an autocomplete to fill. The reason that this was ridiculously slow in Angular was that it would regenerate the entire list on every single keystroke, right? And in the naive implementations, and so if you just Used a little bit of smarts to make sure that you were generating your list and then filtering it down, then you would get the the advantages that you need, and it wouldn't be ridiculously slow necessarily. And when I think about most web applications, typically you're just dropping in a component, uh, something new. You're adding a pop-up. You're you're making one or two small changes to the page. You're not making. Hundreds or thousands of pages or changes, unless you're doing something like a, like a virtual table and virtual scrolling and all of that. In which case, but, but again,
2: but again, Aj, you're looking at it from the perspective of performance, and the perspective that I'm trying to take to is uh, to take you to is a, pr- a perspective of updating the UI as through pure functions, state okay. in, DOM out, and think about it this way. Okay. Uh, whenever, when you're working with Angular, one of the complaints about Angular back in the day was that something changed and it's re- it was really difficult to determine what actually in the, your code actually changed it. What was the cause of that change? And because things could be changed from all over and you you the state itself of the UI was mutable, you kept mutating the state and if you made a wrong decision somewhere along the way then you would end up with an incorrect UI state and it like 10 steps down the line it would be very, really difficult to determine how you got there whereas okay. with react you just take the current state generate the fresh ui as if you're like i said as if you're you went to the server and got the whole page back you don't have to think or worry about what the previous page looked like the only thing that react does with this virtual dom is that it tries to make this actually doable by reducing the cost of replacing the previous dom updating the browser dom from the previous situation to the new, to the new one so you don't you don't look at it as mutable you just look at it as state in dom out and react converts that into a series of mutations. And because it's React it's created by really great developers, you can assume that they wrote the code correctly. You know.
3: Okay, so, so, so that's that. the basic idea. I get that, I get that. So let me repeat what I think I'm understanding. So let's say that we have some terrible ad widget on the page and it has a bad selector and it goes and edits something that it shouldn't edit. With React, once the user clicks a button again, it's gonna re-render from its object of what the state is what the state should be and so the fact that you had an ad widget or an analytics widget or whatever that screwed up your page in some way that you didn't expect and would be a nightmare to debug that 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 bug is only going to persist for a short time and uh, then it's going again to, it, <laughs> again actually not exactly
2: okay true not, not like i thing. said yeah because again like i said if you actually modify the browser dom be- behind react's back React is not aware of it. React does, just writes to the DOM. It doesn't right. read from the DOM unless from the browser DOM, unless right. you. So so if you have a widget that went behind React's back and actually modified a, a part of the browser DOM that it shouldn't touch that page could persist unless React happens to write to that same place as well.
3: Well, that, that's what I'm saying is that React is going to rewrite that thing because you're going to do something on the page and it's going to rewrite the form or it's going to rewrite the list. Or So if but, something is buggy, but, it's less, if something outside of the React is acting on the page, outside of the code flow that you understand is acting on the page, then that is going to be less of a problem.
2: I prefer to think about it slightly differently. Think about the fact that your UI can be in a whole bunch of of states. And in the angular type of an approach or direct DOM manipulation, you can get from any state to any state directly. You just supposedly mutate your state to get from state A to state B. And then you mutate your state to get from state B to state C and so forth. And if you made any mistake along the way... Then instead of going from A to B, you get to B prime, and which is almost like B, but not exactly. And then when you move from B to C, because you're not from B, you're from B prime, you get to a state that's not exactly C either. And the errors kind of accumulate, and pretty soon you're you're seeing something really weird on the screen, and it and it's really difficult to figure out how you got there. With React, whenever you 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 don't go from A to B. You always get back to that virgin state and because you're giving, you're taking your existing current state and generating the entire VDOM from it, you know, at least in the naive approach. So you're always starting from fresh, as it were. Like I said, think about it sort of like what they were looking at is how the browsers used to work when they would hit the server and get back the HTML. Whatever you screwed up in the previous page, that was gone. And again, I'm not looking at some third-party component that you're, I don't, you don't have any control over. I'm, I'm talking about your own code. Um, but wait, if I stu- wrote buggy code, wouldn't it still be buggy, though? Yeah, but again, it's much easier to think about going from fresh to state instead of having to uh, think about and, and measure and monitor all the possible states that might exist in your application it's you know every state transition that you implement is something that you potentially need to think about to test to to make sure that it works correctly right. uh if you have like uh, uh 10 possible states and you can get from any state to any state those are what 10 to the power of 10 those are 100 different types of transitions that you need to to figure out to implement to I think you to made test. a quadrillion well well no it's not 10 to the power of 10 it's it's 10 times 10 because okay. you can get from any, everyone to anyone. You're correct. But it, on the other hand, with the React approach, you, there are only 10 possible transitions. You always go from the fresh state to one of those target states. So it would be 10 transitions. Now, obviously, in a real application, there are not 10 possible states. There are, I don't know. 10,000 possible states. Now, obviously, you can't get from every state to every state, so it's not 10,000 times 10,000. It's just 10,000 times, I don't know, times 100. Uh, so it's a million different state transitions that you would need to to validate. Whereas with React, it's just those 10,000 because you always start from fresh. That's the key. So don't think about it from the, the, the perspective of, of performance because, look, at the end of the day, you know anything that you can do with react or with any framework for that matter you can just do with the plain old dom because at the end of the day all these frameworks are just built on top of the dom so, so dom manipulation a- will can be done as efficiently if not more efficiently than any framework it's just the frameworks make it easier for you to potentially write you know correct code
3: okay so i essentially it gives you a sandbox to operate in and the constraints define the art. Therefore, if you have certain constraints that you operated within, you only have you know, a certain way that you can write the code and you limit yourself to ways of writing the code that are more functional and therefore easier to test and debug. And in- to
2: also reason about.
3: Um, in- well, well, so this is where I in, have a hard... State in HTML out. I, very, I, I would argue
2: that, func- that pure functional it, code is always easier to think about and understand then code that is based on mutating a global object a shared global object
3: so if you're pitting against the extreme then yes well obviously if I you mean, if you apply no constraints to your code style and say everything's fair game at the global level then yes i agree that if you if you intentionally exercise no constraint or code style versus you exercise any constraint or code style, including the functional paradigm, then yes, I agree that it is easier to reason about. However, my primary gripe with React is that it is nearly impossible to reason about because one, it's not JavaScript. It isn't. It is not JavaScript literally. In the textbook definition of what a language is, React is not JavaScript. And it doesn't use patterns that are familiar to JavaScript, and this is uh, is said very well in Abramov's talk, React to the Future, where he oh, yeah. he totally says, agree. in essence, the problem with React is JavaScript. We could only get so far away from Java JavaScript. That's not exactly his wording, but that was his message: is that React's great. The problem is JavaScript. Uh, I, I wouldn't take it
2: that far, but I totally agree with what you said. I kind of agree and disagree because, on the other hand, as we all know, I really love JavaScript. I'm a jo- on a JavaScript podcast. I'm a JavaScript fanboy. I definitely don't want to get away from JavaScript. And you're correct. And I I, I haven't I don't recall reading that post by by Dan Abramov, so I, I can't comment on it directly. But it's definitely true that JSX is not JavaScript. But on the other hand, it's in a lot of ways, React is JavaScript centric because everything is done within JavaScript files. And you uh, the JSX is embedded within JavaScript functions. And definitely you're using different paradigms, but they're all implemented in JavaScript. Uh, whereas other frameworks really walk away from JavaScript if you look at like angular view they have their own templates which are and their own kind of templating language which is totally not like uh JavaScript so you're writing conditions and loops within your front-end application in a totally different programming language with while in JavaScript if you do a loop it's probably implemented using something like a, a map uh, function or something like that so it's kind of interesting that on one hand you're definitely correct that it's not really JavaScript anymore because it's JSX. but on the other hand, it's still in a lot of ways really JavaScript centric. So you know take it any way, any way you like. But the point is I'm try- the, the, the key point I was trying to make is that the VDOM was created to make things really simple in an, an ideal world they would have been. but then you ran into these three problems that I mentioned. One is the initial state, which like I said, we'll get to later. The other is one is that even with the VDOM, it can still be too expensive to do that entire compa- uh, g- uh, generation of the VDOM and the, and the whole reconciliation on each and every change. You need to have shortcuts. And, and the third one was that uh, you do want to have some sort of a local state, whereas the model that I described so far, uh, that function that generates the VDOM just takes the whole global state. So you keep everything in the global state, and that's obviously problematic. And I presented one way to reduce the effort of generating the VDOM, which was by having the ability to do some sort of maybe a cutoff, seeing that uh, the, the state that you got when uh, when compared to the previous state that you had on the previous invocation would generate the exact same VDOM, so there's no point in continuing. Uh, it it can be a great optimization. But as we saw, it's actually difficult to implement using pure functions. And indeed, when React implemented it, at least originally, they did it via classes. So you would implement a method on on an object which would be invoked in order to do the comparison. And then it would invoke a different method. If if the comparison returned that rendering is still needed, it would invoke a different uh, method in order to actually return the the generated uh, VDOM, and but the other problem with it is that it can it can sometimes reduce uh, the overhead, but in some cases it can actually introduce overhead because even the comparison itself can be fairly expensive. Let's put that issue aside for a minute and let's talk about the problem of the local state. You know where can I put the local state? Because one approach is to avoid local state, and some uh, reactive
0: interrupt you here for a second Dan we're already at an hour recording I have a hard stop in 20 minutes so yeah how how much longer are we gonna go
2: yeah probably another episode I think
0: (laughs) probably all right so we'll just kind of put a pin in this here we'll schedule a follow-up episode do a part two and yeah this is really fascinating I mean a lot of this stuff I'm aware of but anyway I really really enjoy just kind of seeing where you're coming from on this Dan. And yeah, some of the stuff makes sense. Some of the stuff it's like okay, again, I would use this in certain circumstances and other not others, but I'm I'm really enjoying it. Oh yeah, um,
2: for sure. If just if I only have really a small amount of of DOM nodes that I need to actually browser DOM nodes that I actually need mm-hmm. to modify, then a solution like that is is a total overkill. And I can just write simpler, simple vanilla JavaScript and browser DOM and, and be done with it. And like AJ said, if, if I'm really organized about the way that I write the code and kind of push the, uh, the code that does the, the DOM manipulation via side effects to really specific functions and make sure that certain parts of the DOM are only modified by those functions, then again, I can write pretty clean code. It's just that in reality, i uh, my experience is that unfortunately developers are not that organized. That if you have this global state that you can touch from everywhere, then peop- the developers they're under pressure. They create uh, technical debt. They take shortcuts. You know, I need to I need to modify. This part of the DOm, and it would be really difficult for me to call this whole sequence of functions and modify stuff all over the all over the place, so I'll just reach out to the DOM and touch it from here and and you know job mm-hmm. done and, and and eventually you end up with a big mess
3: but tomato potato because I mean the React code that I've seen is a big mess where it's a bunch of people just use and and i I get the argument well, you're not really coding React if you're using Redux or whatever. I get that right people just throw in these extra state management tools and then they throw the state everywhere and then everything is entrapped with the drippings of the state. And I don't see how that's any better. than you need to be a disciplined I, coder. The, the React isn't going to solve that problem.
2: I totally uh, agree. Yeah. agree with everything you said, uh, AJ. And yeah, React is no silver bullet. And if you write the messy code, then you can definitely write messy code in React. And my issue and, and the one exactly that I'm was trying to express in this uh, in our conversation is that if you understand the React approach, the React philosophy, and try to write your code accordingly, work with React instead of just writing on top of React, then you would probably end up with much better and cleaner code.
3: I agree with that. I think the same applies for the DOM. But I agree. Fair enough. I, I, I'd, I'd, I'd much rather people get good React training and write good React code than not get good React training and write bad DOM code. Fair yeah.
0: enough. All right. Well, I'm going to push this into picks just in the interest of time. And yeah, we'll, we'll definitely revisit this in a future episode. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Steve, why don't you start us off with picks?
1: All righty then. So I came across a site that's right up my alley. It is a phrase generator, a catchy headline generator. And it says, the description says it generates random clickbait titles for your blog or magazine articles. And then it has different categories like academic quotes. Uh, It even has Bible quotes, which is (laughs) sort of funny, financial advice, headlines, and there's this random button and you push and you get a new headline. So like five jaw-dropping secrets that make supervisors stronger. There's political rhetoric. says, I refuse to support an America where corrupt labor unions and greedy insurance companies can undermine our big box retail stores. Or the Bible quotes is great. Uh, they that praise the Lord thy God shall cast out lust and vice, they shall banish wickedness. You know, just quotes that you won't find anywhere, but it's it can come up with some really funny ones. So it's at uh, phrasegenerator.com. And then for my... Highly anticipated jokes that I provide every episode. Question, what is the difference between a cat and a complex sentence? A cat has claws at the end of its paws and a complex sentence has a pause at the end of its claws. Thank you. Thank you very much. Been <laughs> muted in time. And then... Uh, um, that was actually pretty good. Why do birds fly to warmer climates in the winter? Because it's easier than walking.
3: <laughs>
1: and then finally, last one. Went to my uh, doctor the other day, because I wasn't feeling well. And I said, doctor, and I got a bad case. I have a case of diarrhea. What should I do? He said, buy a new case. Thank you. So those are my picks for the day. All right. AJ, what are your picks? So
3: first I will pick the React to the Future Talk. I was wrong. It is not by Abramov. It is by Jordan Walk. Is that the person okay. that actually created React? Yes. Okay. So even better... <laughs> Because this is the person who actually created React says the problem with React is JavaScript. And it's a talk on reason. It's a clickbait talk because you think that it's going to be about React and then it's React sucks because JavaScript, reason is going to be the solution. Well, not React sucks, but React is crippled because of JavaScript. Reason is the solution. It's kind of what the talk's about. I honestly, I only made it about halfway through then I got too angry. But... (laughs) but, uh, Put that there for people to listen to it if they want to hear the words of the person who created React. I'm also going to pick a couple of books. I'm going to pick uh, three, actually. I'm going to pick, well, I guess one's not a book, but Tribal Leadership is perhaps one of the most beneficial books that I have listened to in a long time. And I think it's one of those ones where I am not advanced enough as a human being to be able to digest it in in one go but it's it's uh it's essentially about the way that humans work together. Uh, it's it's not a framework. Many many of the business books out there present a framework for how to work together such as uh, you know doing sprint being an example that programmers are familiar with or different methodologies and tribal leadership is not really about a framework. It's about this is what people actually do. And these are how we give, it's those researchers, it's the words that they give to describe what they've observed about how people work together and what works best and what doesn't. And they describe it in stages, stage one through five, where stage one is life sucks. Stage two is my life sucks. Stage three is I'm awesome. Stage four is we're awesome. Stage five is, Life is awesome, and those don't sound like descriptions of people working together. But if you get into the book, it does. And and basically, everybody's at different stages, and might be at different stages within different tribes about how they feel. And this is it's just identifying how to how teams that work well together work well together, and and give some suggestions about how to move in move either your whole team or a subgroup of your team from one stage to the next stage. And so I, I think that it's quite valuable, uh, perhaps one of the most valuable books that I've I've ever read. If I'm able to internalize it and and kind of you know, tease out those practices, because working with people is what makes life awesome or terrible or both. The next one that I'm going to pick is Innovator Solution, which would have been probably the if if maybe Tribal Leadership takes my new number one position, then Innovator Solution may be dropping to number two. And Innovator Solution is just a book about, well, business. So if you're not interested in business and innovating, then you know maybe it's not for you. But there's another book of a similar name. There's actually three other books of a similar name. But Innovator Solution is the most important one. It's not the one that's most famous, but it's the one obviously by its name, Innovator's Solution. This one is the one that has the answers, whereas some of the other books are more a different approach, which I won't say their names just so that. You get one thing stuck in your head, which is solution, and you don't get confused by two things. Other than that, oh, oh yeah, and then if you've got insomnia, I found this um, this meditation. I don't necessarily like listening to it, but it has been incredibly useful for me to actually fall to sleep. It's called A Meditation for Healthful Sleep, Guided Imagery to Reduce Insomnia and Improve Quality and Quantity of Restful Sleep by Belarus Naparstek. So I'm going to give a link to that. Because I always listen to it and think, "Oh, how am I going to fall asleep to this? This is not that good. Why do I like this so much?" And then I always fall asleep. So, I, it it works. And then other than that, normal stuff. creedsofcraftsmanship.com, at Cool Age eighty six for following live streams at underscore Beyond Code for following the 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 more high value material that I produce from time to time.
2: All right, Dan, what are your picks? I only have just the one pick. So one of my colleagues at Wix is this awesome guy called uh, Gar Schlesinger. He's into a lot of really cool stuff, into WebAssembly and Rust. I really need to get him to come on the show sometime. Uh, One of the things he likes to play with is TypeScript. And he takes TypeScript to the extreme. Because, you know, when you're throwing generics and stuff like that into the type system, the type system itself becomes its own programming language. And so he wrote this post called Typing the Technical Interview in TypeScript, in which he uses TypeScript's own type system to implement the old uh, FizzBuzz problem. So he implements a solution for FizzBuzz using just the TypeScript type system. Really interesting, really amusing article, highly enjoyable, at least uh, I found it so. And like I said, I definitely need to get him on on our show. And this would be
0: my one and only pick for today. Awesome. I'm going to go out with a couple of picks here. So the first pick I have, I had this infection in my foot. It was bad. I'm going to pick antibiotics. The infection's gone. The pain's gone. Life is good. The other pick that I have, usually I listen to books while I work out, and I haven't been working out because running, biking, infected foot. Anyway, so I, I don't have a book pick right now, but uh, I I am going to be putting out some more content about this. And you can go find that at topenddevscom podcast. But what I'm working on lately is a system to help people level up. And I feel like there's kind of a, a multi-pronged approach that people can take for this. And so if you're interested in creating content for developers, I'm looking at three different kinds of series. One of is going to be kind of the, the longer form course that everybody's kind of used to. But when I was learning how to program, a lot of the videos that were really helpful for for me were the half hour to one hour. Hey, here's how you do this thing. And so I'm going to be putting a lot of that stuff together as well. And then the other ones that were really helpful for me were the ones like Rails uh, Rails casts back in the day. And they were like 15 minute videos where it was, hey, here's how you do this thing real quick. And then you'd get another one. Eventually he was doing two a week because one was paid and one was free. And so I'm looking at doing something very similar to that model. It's all at topenddevs.com. I'm running a special through the end of November for Black Friday, and I realize that this may go out right after that. But you can sign up for 50% off at topenddevs.com and start getting access to that. I'm going to be doing master classes up through the end of the year that you can join in on or watch the replays on for various things related to your career and leveling up and learning and and things like that. And there might be some widely applicable things that I put in there like Docker or some of the other tools out there that the developers can use. You know, maybe we'll do a a once-through masterclass on VS Code, for example. But anyway, and then January, I intend to launch my first longer course. February, the same thing. March, the same thing. And the whole list will be up on topendevs.com. And then finally, yeah, I'm going to be putting out series on leadership and career growth, and then I may pick a technology that I know well enough to do the ongoing series on, or I may just start at the beginning and say, here's the basic weekly stuff, but put those videos out as well. We're also adding a Slack channel where you can get help. There's going to be a way for you to connect with other people who are part of the community. And anyway, tons of great stuff coming. So if you want to be involved, go to topendevs.com and just sign up. If you want to author one of these, right, so it's like, hey, I want I want to be doing the series on React or Angular or whatever. I'm, I think I'm going to beg Dan to do one. But anyway, I'm also going to beg AJ to do one and Steve to do one now that I'm thinking about it. But anyway, so yeah, so if we can get these series going um, and you want to author, basically my plan is is it, there's going to be a certain percentage of incoming revenue. We'll split it up according to how many minutes of your videos people watch, right? So if you're doing the ongoing stuff, I think you'll probably get more minutes than people who do the shorter videos. Who knows, right? It may be a hot topic that people just need to learn in an hour. But anyway, so if you're interested in in being a part of that, go to uh, topendevs.com slash author. You can just fill in the form. I'll get an email. I'll get back to you and we'll figure it out. But yeah, I, I'd love to get some of this stuff rolling so that when we launch at the beginning of January, there's plenty of content in there and the community is moving along in a way that will help you level up because my mission my goal is to get you on the path to becoming top five percent developer in your field whatever that is react ruby javascript whatever right wherever you want to be and then get you the outcomes that you want from your career and that could be salary it could be lifestyle it could be i want to be home for my kids at a certain time of the day i mean, whatever. But let's get you there. And, you know, it's not so hard that you have to go and be this uh, meta genius across all these ideas. So anyway, topendevs.com, that's where it's all going to live. The podcasts are moving over there right now. In fact, they're mostly moved over. So you can just go over there and click on any of the podcasts that we have. Um, And then if you have other ideas for other technologies that we're not covering right now, um, yeah, feel free to let me know as well. Um, The Slack channel will be free so you can get in that for free. There's just gonna be some premium channels that people can get into if they're paid members. Anyway, that's what I've got. I'm super excited. The thing that I implemented yesterday, so I'll pick them as well because I'm super happy with them, is Auth0. So uh, I'm using them for the authentication on this. It was way faster and easier to pull them in and then hook up like the Google and GitHub and whatever sign in than it was for me to go build it out in Rails. So. I'm pretty happy with them and we'll see how that all shakes out but yeah uh, those are my picks. Wait a
3: second. Even even better than using forget the name of it. What's device? Yeah,
0: device. So device is easy. The problem is is getting all those other types of sign-ins. I want I want people to be able to sign in with whatever they Oh,
3: Devise doesn't have plugins for the other sign-ins.
0: It does, but you have to go and maintain that stuff. I'd rather just let Off 0 do that. So anyway, that's pretty much it. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Also, if you want just direct coaching on any of that stuff, topendevs.com slash coaching. And yeah, we'll wrap it up here. Thanks for coming. This was terrific, Dan.
2: Thank you very much. I enjoyed it myself. And I I get the pleasure of having a follow-up. So, you know, double win.
0: Right? Thought. All right, folks, till next time, max out. Bye. Adios. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit cachefly.com to learn more.